Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 24th of October, and the year, of course, is still 2020. Let's get started straight away. Okay, so I'm going to start to talk to you about a paper published in uh, Oncology Letters. This was published in 2016, August. The volume on that is uh, 12 and uh, page number 897 all the way to 903. Let me tell you why I'm taking a look at this paper. It's going to link together melatonin, aging, and the immune system. Okay. So this paper tells me the inadequate supply of oxygen nutrients, which are normally found, of course, during novel angiogenesis as associated with tumor development is of course going to be the critical aspect for growth and expansion and ultimately division of tumor cells. Now, this paper suggests that it was demonstrated that melatonin exhibited a, an oncostatic activity, which means it caused oncogenesis to plateau. Doesn't mean that the cancer was gone. It just meant no, means no new cancer growth. I don't, it doesn't really mean that uh, it, it, the tumor is uh, decreasing in volume. So oncostatic activity. Um, and even though it appeared to have some anti-tumor activity um, because it affected angiogenesis. And so this was seen perhaps in uh, first in animal models, but uh, the cell type was gastric cancer cells. So looks like melatonin inhibited the growth of gastric cancer cells. The ones they used were the SGC7901. Those are common. And interestingly enough, they actually did a dose and time dependent uh, study and they found that indeed regular melatonin had a dose curve and a time dependent curve that did block the growth of these cells. Also, they did uh, a study that demonstrated that low concentrations of melatonin had no clear effect on vascular endothelial growth factor, that's VEGF, which of course you always see during tumor genesis, but high concentrations, this is up at about three millimolar of melatonin, actually suppressed VEGF secretion in the cell. So looks like melatonin causes suppression of these gastric cancer growth and blockaded tumor angiogenesis in tumor bearing nude mice. Okay, so that's the model system. Melatonin treatment reduced the expression of its nuclear receptor. Of course, that we've already discussed this. That's the ROAR gamma and ROAR alpha uh, uh, programming. Also, sumo-specific protease-1 and HIF-1-alpha, as well as VEGF, all at the transcriptional and even post-transcriptional translational levels in this cell lineage, this gastric cell lineage. Uh, and all this occurred during active tumor genesis. So they conclude from this paper that melatonin nuclear receptors, the ones we've always been talking about, the, they call it RZR, ROR gamma, could be important in the melatonin-mediated anti-angiogenesis and growth inhibitory effect on these cancer cells. So they're suggesting that maybe that's a target, okay? So I'm telling you that so that you get an idea about how melatonin keeps on coming up as a good player in many of the diseases one might expect to uh, obtain as one agents. Okay, so that's why I wanted to pull that paper for you. Now, let's go back to talk about melatonin and its mimetic analog, Ramelteon. 
So this comes from a paper published back in January 2009 in CNS Neuroscience and Therapeutics. That's going to be volume 15, page 32. I'll make sure to put these in the show notes for you. So unlike sedative hypnotics, which of course are like the benzodiazepines, second generation of hypnotics, which included triazolam and lorazepam, were used all still targeting the GABA-A receptor complex. Whereas remelteon is a very specific mimetic to melatonin and it works via chronohypnotic response. So it acts on the melatonin receptors, MT1 and MT, MT, MT1 and MT2. And of course, those are, as we've been saying, primarily located in the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And that's where you find anatomically the body's master clock. So the difference between melatonin and remelteon, I gave you the chemical formula a while ago, so I'm not going to repeat it here, is that you've had an ether group on a ring structure that makes it basically into a ferran ring. And that confers a higher affinity for those two receptors. Um, there's also an S configuration, which confers further higher affinity for the two melatonin receptors. Okay. So they were doing structure function relationships. This was uh, a flat out uh, pharmaceutical uh, mode of action paper. Now they're going to tell you that benzodiazepine hypnotics produce a lot of side effects. Now, of course we know this because they've been in the literature and they've been in the clinic for a really long time. And, um, they are generally not to be used for chronic insomnia. Uh, so the side effects, of course, are cognitive and psychomotor impairment. They, of course, there's the chemical dependency or biochemical dependency. You also get tolerance and there's a hangover and there's also a rebound insomnia that's been described. So any of these benzodiazepine receptor agonists, uh, including third generation fanatics, and even with the non-benzodiazepine uh, structures, and those include Zolpidem and Zapiclone, as well as Zalaplon. They're all developed to maintain a sleep-inducing action, but still get a reduction in side effects. And side effects, again, are things like motor dysfunction and, and even amnesia, or partial uh, remitting amnesia. And it was reported that there is no tolerance during treatment and no or very limited rebound insomnia after therapy discontinuation with long-term use of those third generation non-benzodiazepine um, uh, ph pharmaceuticals. However, at a higher dose, the non-benzodiazepine hypnotics will cause similar side effects as those caused by the frank benzodiazepines. But it looks like the severity of side effects differed among the specific structures, as you might guess. So benzodiazepine receptor agonists, including non-benzodiazepines, uh, do have abuse and dependence potential. So still we're not, that's not a good thing to have, right? So let's get into Alzheimer's disease. As Alzheimer's disease is typically associated with a disturbed sleep-wake rhythm and an overall circadian rhythm, the melatonin agonist with a higher affinity for those two receptors, MT1 and MT2, and yet with a longer duration, could be more beneficial 
than melatonin itself, because remember it only has a half-life about a half an hour, recall. Um, it gets um, uh, metabolized through that kinurene metabolite. So it might be better at, at going after these um, AD-associated disorders like sleep, wake, and circadian rhythm. So remelteon, it was actually the first melatonin receptor agonist uh, approved by the FDA. This is again, not that long ago, 10 years ago. The chemical structure, as I told you, um, I'm not gonna go through it again, but anyways, it, it differs only by that, those, those two slight different differences. One is in stereochemistry and the other is in that end ring. The binding receptor studies indicate that remelteon did have a higher selectivity but a very low affinity for the third receptor for melatonin. And the third receptor is actually a quinone reductase 2. More on that soon. So the selectivity of remelteon for MT1 was about a thousandfold better than MT2. So you have to have more, you have to have enough MT1 receptor for it to work. It turns out, it turns out there's a lot of that in the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's well known that melatonin exerts its hypnotic effects through the activation of both of those receptors. So everything was good with remelteon. Now, although both of those receptors, MT1 and 2, are involved in the regulation of sleep, the selectivity of an MT1 receptor, which is what remelteon like prefers, 10 to the third more, suggests it targets sleep onset because of the presentation after the pharmaceutical uptake, uh, and more specifically sleep onset than melatonin itself parent pineal um, gland hormones. So remelteon has been found to have no affinity for benzodiazepines um, like dop or dopamine or opiate or serotonin receptor binding sites. So that's all good. So remelteon has advantages over other hypnotic drugs. It doesn't cause rebound insomnia. It doesn't call withdrawal, cause withdrawal symptoms or dependence. And it's common with the activate, and all those, of course, are common with benzodiazepines, opiates, or indeed uh, dopamine receptor um, pharmacotherapeutics. So, since its discovery in 58, melatonin obviously plays a role in circadian rhythms, sleep wake cycles. They claim there's a cyclic nature of melatonin's production in the pineal gland. I've seen uh, some papers would suggest it may not be a, a cyclical pattern, but one that is expanded out that looks like a cycle, but probably actually has um, overall changes in relative concentration as cells age in culture and as uh, the organism ages. We've talked about this. The pineal gland is where everything happens in terms of melatonin. I mean, there are other uh, tissues that do produce it, but the pineal gland is the major source of the melatonin that's, that finds the receptors in the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So that's the key feature there, anatomical association. Anyways, controlled by neuronal output by that nucleus. And you know that nucleus, of course, is part of the hypothalamus. I don't think I need to say that. Now, with regard to sleep in humans, melatonin synthesis concurrent with nocturnal sleep. The increase in endogenous melatonin levels in the evening correlates with the onset of self-reported sleepiness in humans and increase in sleep propensity. 
The identification and cloning of the melatonin receptors increased the understanding of how it works. That was back in 98. Nomenclature Committee of the International Union of Basic and Clinical Pharmacology classified the receptors as 1, 2, 3, MT being the first of signatures. MT1 receptor was used to be called the ML1A and MEL1A in the older literature. And the M2, of course, was called ML1B or MEL1B. So if you go back in the literature, you'll see that. They're initially defined as high affinity binding sites. Pick it up with picomolar concentrations. Uh, and they, they was discovered both in uh, the chick and the mammalian brain and also in the retina. MT1 receptor uh, message was detected, of course, in the, C, in the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And studies using an MT1 receptor knockout mice suggested that the receptor mediated the acute inhibition of the SCN firing by melatonin. The MT2 receptor message has also been detected in the SCN, of course, and the activity of that receptor has been associated with the phase shifting effects of melatonin on circadian rhythm. So you need both of them to really link up with chronorhythmicity. Uh, uh, now the MT3 binding site, which of course originally was called just ML2, was initially defined as a low grade, low affinity binding site, because that's at nanomolar, right? Affinity concentrations in mammalian brains and even in, in some peripheral organs, particularly in the gut. It recently been characterized as a melatonin sensitive form, as I just told you, of a quinone reductase isoform 2. So MT3 as a profile is completely different from that of the other two receptors, and it's probably not even involved in the sleep-wake cycle. Here's a published action in Chem Biochem. Yep, that's the name of the journal. Volume 19, published in August of 2018, so just a little over two years ago. Pages 1657 and ongoing. Let's go back to this paper here. Okay. Now, this paper is going to get involved in a little bit of reactive oxygen, so let's go through this. In biological systems, superoxide is a key intermediate reactive oxygen species, or ROS. Of course, it's, con it's produced by a not monovalent reduction of molecular oxygen by all kinds of different enzymatic pathways, such as nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide phosphate hydride oxidase, okay, uh, and xanthine oxidase. So you've got NOxes or NOxes, and you've got XOs. You also have cytochrome P450 and the mitochondrial electron transport chain itself. And there's also a nitric oxide synthase. Uh, that's the ENOS that also is able to catalyze that uh, partial synthesis of superoxide. Now, because superoxide is a primary, that means it first comes on stage and is relatively stable compared to some of the others. It's responsible for the formation of all the other reactive oxygen, uh, like the hydroxyl anion, uh, which comes from dismutation of hydrogen peroxide. You also get through the Fenton reaction of hydrogen peroxide with um, ferrous ion. Uh, you also get uh, the production of peroxy nitroso compounds, and that's via the reaction with nitric oxide. The superoxide is also involved in protein modification, of course, through reactions with tyrosyl radicals. That's actually how the ribonucleotide reductase is turned on. And in bioluminescence of fireflies, it's important through a single electron transfer. However, 
its exact biochemical role in processes like cell signaling, which it apparently has, cell proliferation, which we know it has, and apoptosis, immune responses, neurodegeneration, all that still needs to be completely fleshed out. Major reason for all of that, a lack of complete fluid understanding with a plenum of literature is getting a suitable in vitro superoxide generating system. Because if you have that, then you can do good biochemistry, right? At a molecular level. So xanthine oxidase is a key one that works out. Also potassium dioxide. Both of those are used to generate superoxide. Both systems have limitations as they all do. In the enzymatic system, superoxide, of course, you generate it through oxidation to uric acid in the presence of molecular oxygen by the xanthine oxidase. Xanthine oxidase, in turn, is obtained from bovine milk due to the absence of an efficient heterologous expression system for its production. So putting this together even in vitro is a little bit complicated so that you can generate the superoxide to do the studies. <clears throat> now, in addition, there's a low solubility of, of uh, all of these intermediates in water, as you know, and the requirement for equimolar amounts of substrate also becomes important because of the way the uh, reaction works with uh, xanthine oxidase. Xanthine oxidase will catalyze the oxidation of purines, uh, certain aldehydes, and pteridines, and that also, because it works, reacts with all those different compounds, will limit the application of the system in biochemical studies. The potassium encounters the potassium um, substrate is a good source of superoxide in aprotic solvents, but unfortunately, it instantly dismutates in um, any solvents that uh, that are not that have any proticity to them. So that's a problem. In addition, the low solubility of these compounds in water requirement for an equimolar amount of substrate availability, as I've just been saying, all result in you know owing to limitations of the methods that you that you can generate. Um, you so people have been looking at the quinone quinone reductase system. That system utilizes quinone as a key molecule electron transfer. Of course, we've 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 seen quinone. We've talked about it a great deal in um, the electron transport chain, right? The quin uh, quinone uh, QH2 semiquinone pathway, which is associated between uh, complexes one and three. In the, in the ATC electron transport chain. So we've, we've seen this before. We've looked at quinone reductase. So again, the, the system that they're trying to set up would use quinone as a key molecule in electron transfer. Um, quinone is, no, we know that it's going to undergo an enzyme catalyzed one or sometimes two electron reduction to form the highly reactive semi-quinone, um, acronym SQ, or the hydroquinone, acronym HQ respectively, it's one or two electron, right? So the HQ can result in the formation of um, the semiquinone, right? By auto-oxidation in the presence of more molecular oxygen. Subsequent transfer of electron from the semiquinone to oxygen, and then we'll, of course, generate the superoxide anion, as well as a molecule of free quinone. Cycle of reduction, oxidation of quinone is all part of a redox cycle unto itself. And it's utilized here just to develop um, a superoxide generating system, again, for the applications. That's what this paper was talking about. 
So you can use NADPH in the quinone reductase, and that's going to convert quinone via um, the semiquinone to hydroquinone, right? And that's going to be the end product. You're going to be able to take the hydroquinone back to semiquinone by, again, that reaction with molecular oxygen to make superoxide. And likewise, the semiquinone going back to the quinone in the presence of molecular oxygen. All these are auto-oxidations will generate more of that superoxide. So it's a really good system to generate superoxide by moving these electrons um, uh, towards the hydroquinone, then spontaneous auto-oxidation by the delivery of molecular oxygen. So this is just straightforward redox chemistry. All right, so creating that superspecies, a, this redox-based enzyme-catalyzed system for superoxide achieved a great deal of, of um, superoxide going through the hydroquinone, semiquinone pathway. Um, of course, the superoxide generating biological system when you once you've got it, then you can hook it up with living cells. And the only thing you really need is the xanthine, xanthine oxidase to be functioning correctly to do biochemical studies. And that's going to be found in the cells that you're working with. It does suffer some limitations because there's a lack of a heterolysis expression of that xanthine oxidase. And I told you about that. And also there's the irreversible consumption and low solubility of xanthine under uh, normal physiological conditions, you know, pH 7. Uh, etc. Herein, they reported this redox uh, uh, catalyzed reaction, which I just described to you. So we're well on our way to understanding the system, right? All right. So now you know that you can study the redox system and you can study superoxide. Now, all of that is important because the MT3 melatonin receptor is indeed a quinone reductase too, right? So now I'm telling you that if you have the quinone reductase functioning, you're going to make superoxide. From superoxide, you can make hydrogen peroxide, and by dismutation, you can make hydroxyl anion, uh, radical anion, and you know that's a very, the most potent um, uh, molecular species of reactive oxygen that exists. So with melatonin binding to that, it's a great generator of reactive oxygen. So that's where melatonin plays a role in generating reactive oxygen. That's why I told you that whole story, okay? So melatonin is actually a co-substrate for that reaction. Which reaction? The, again, the quinone reductase 2. So it looks like melatonin, not the remeltium, melatonin, the actual pineal hormone, binds to its co-substrate, which is, of course, QR2, right? And that that will then generate, right? Because MT, that is melatonin's binding to this co-substrate binding site in the QR2. It's going to need a couple of other factors, which are all embedded in there. Flavin adenine dinucleotide gets reduced to either FADH or FADH2, while the melatonin, here's where it gets metabolized, it's going to get converted to N-acetyl N2-formyl 5-methoxykinuramine, or it can also spontaneously cyclize to cyclic 3-hydroxymelatonin, both of which are um, not functional 
for either the MT1 or MT2 that takes melatonin now. That's why it only has a half-life of half an hour. You see, now that all makes sense because it's reacting with its third receptor and the MT3 receptor, the clonal reductors in the plasma membrane is quite ubiquitous in almost all cells. So it's likely that what the quinone reductase is supposed to be doing is to detoxify. And uh, it detoxifies because it's an antioxidant enzyme, right? So this, it's believed that's what it's doing. Now, what melatonin does potentially is generate more superoxide, which, of course, can be quenched because it's a relatively poor reactive oxygen in and of itself. So it's a naturally occurring substance and melatonin's levels fluctuate, as we know, between light like dark cycles and with aging, as I've been saying, and in various kinds of stress or disease states, such as the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Because of that, uh, uh, all that alteration in melatonin, which we know occurs, it's probably going to influence the effect of its activity on the quinone reductase too, and therefore the production a potentially damaging species of molecular oxygen. I see this is where I wanted to take you. I wanted to get you deep into an understanding about this redox part, partial uh, association with melatonin binding its third sort of um, non-specific receptor can be a mechanism whereby reactive oxygen is either generated or removed depending on the poise of the quinone reductase in the membrane and whether or not it metabolizes melatonin as a co-substrate and therefore allows for some synthesis of reactive oxygen. That's all important. Now, you can go back and look at the paper where I found this. It's in a journal of pineal research published about 13 years ago in November of 2007. It's a really good paper, actually, and that was published, um, yeah, um, the page number on that is 317 published, like I said, about 13 years ago. So, Romeltion is not only as a potential in improving the sleep quality of Alzheimer's disease, which is, again, bringing us back into aging. That's why we're talking about it. Okay, and also how melatonin is controlling the whole sleep cycle. But also because it seems like it may have less damage than adding melatonin because of this effect on reactive oxygen. Because remember, Romeltion does not bind to the quinone reductor. So it's a melatonin agonist for the MT1 and MT2. has a longer duration time, as I've been saying. Okay, so this is all really important. MT1, MT2 receptor mediated effects on the upregulation of several antioxidant enzymes has been noted, which is curious, right? Because it's also binding to that quinone reductase. Now I'm talking about melatonin binding these receptors. Uh, and what are some of the enzymes that are associated with upregulation? Uh, glutathione peroxidase, glutathione reductase, gamma glutamylcysteine synthase, glucose 6-phosphor dehydrogenase making ADPH, heme peroxidase catalase, copper zinc, and manganese superoxide dismutases are all agonized by romeltion in Alzheimer's disease. So this is all good. So you're getting all kinds of depletion of reactive oxygen because you're, you're causing the transcription of all those genes I just mentioned, which are antioxidant enzymes once they're translated from the RNA. So a typical loss of melatonin receptors in AD patients has been well described. It's also been described, it's also explained in the cerebral cortex and the pineal gland. The 
pineal gland members where melatonin synthesized, cerebral cortex is in active site degeneration in um, advanced Alzheimer's patients. You also find MT1 and MT2 receptors in the hippocampus. And as I mentioned before, M2 specifically in the retina. And we find it throughout the cerebrovascular system uh, where some MT1 receptors also show up. So the chance of alleviating symptoms such as sundowning and disturbed sleep cycles by giving this receptor agonist, the remeltium, looks like it may work, but it seems to vanish in late AD patients because the receptors vanish, you see. The receptors vanish. So this probably isn't going to work um, uniformly, right? So I'm going to stop there because because I'm getting into more of the circadian rhythm discussion. And I want to go a little bit slower through it because I'm going to tell you how Remeltion is associated with circadian, uh, repair of circadian dysfunction. And uh, that's going to take some details because this is a randomized study with a small number of patients, but still it was a pretty good study that I'm going to tell you about. Was going to be, it's going to be a discussion on a paper published in Brain Behavioral Immunology in 2019, March of that year. So that's where we're going to pick up when we get back to um, finishing this um, to, uh, this particular movement through remeltion as a melatonin receptor agonist that does not bind to the quinone reductase and therefore removes the potential for generating more superoxide and therefore more highly uh, potent and um, neurodegenerative reactive oxygen species. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra on again the 24th of October 2020 from authentic biochemistry telling you bye for now.